Welcome to the Keeping It Israel podcast with Jeff Futers, where Jeff and his guests talk everything Israel as it relates to Christian faith and the church. If you are a Christian and you stand with Israel, you will be encouraged and challenged by this podcast. And if you're not so sure about the whole Israel thing, you need to learn how your faith connects with Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's Jeff with today's guest. Well, welcome to the podcast today, and uh, it is my privilege to have with us as a guest, Calvin Crombie. And uh, Calvin, first of all, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be with you. Morning for me, but it's night for you. Yes, you are all the way from, are you right in Perth or just near Uh, there? I live in the hills outside of Perth. In the hills outside of Perth, Australia, and so uh, as Calvin mentioned, it is uh, about eight o'clock in the evening for me right now. Just a little after, and nine in the morning for him. So this is uh, already tomorrow. Uh, you know, this I'm time traveling, and I didn't even uh, didn't even know it. But okay. anyhow. Uh, Calvin, it's great to have you. And uh, just to give some context to those who are watching and to our listeners, um, I met you 2019 on a, a tour of Poland with uh, Reverend David Pelegi from Christ Church in Jerusalem. And um, I had never been to Poland before. It was all a brand new experience for me, learning about Jewish life and culture in Poland uh, in the days around World War II. And then, of course, talking about the Holocaust and visiting all of these, um, what I have come to call sacred spaces. They, they really felt that way to me. But um, you were also there as a part of that tour. And uh, I'm not sure that wasn't your first time, was it? No, I've been there several times before. Several. And um, Calvin is a uh, an author and a researcher. And uh, on the trip that we were together in Poland, uh, Calvin was actually doing some of his research, and uh, maybe just off the top, tell us a little bit about that project, and we'll probably circle back around to it before we finish today. Uh, well, Jeff, the project revolves around what happened to the Jewish followers of Jesus uh, during the period of the Holocaust, during the period of the Nazi regime, 1933 to 1945, not just in Poland, but in actual fact, all the way through Europe. And um, I've been working on this for a couple of years now, almost three years, two and a half to three years. Um, David Pelleggi and I worked together in Jerusalem. I lived in Jerusalem for 24 years. And for many of those years, David and I worked together at Christchurch. And I was the the local guide and researcher and historian for the organization that we worked for, Church's Ministry Among Jewish People. And Mm -hmm. that was based at Christchurch inside the old city of Jerusalem. Um, but CMJ had branches elsewhere around the world, particularly before 1939. I think they had something like about 40 different mission stations spread throughout the world, many of them in Europe and primarily in what we would call Eastern Europe, including Poland. And so uh, CMJ had two big centres in Poland in 1939. One was in Warsaw and the other one was in Lvov, which is now Lviv in Ukraine. And the one in Warsaw was a very, very big center. I think that it was a four-story high building right next door to the university. We went there on our, on our trip. I was going so to say that. Yeah. So there was a congregation that was involved in there, and that was about probably about 120, I would say. It must, must have been 120 adults, I would say, and they're all Jewish Christians or Hebrew Christians. In those days, they weren't called Messianic Jews. That's, that's what Jewish followers of Jesus are called today, but they weren't called then. Um, and so uh, since I was working at Christchurch, involved with this organization, we knew of the existence of the work of CMJ in Poland, but I didn't delve into it a great deal when I lived in Israel because there's nothing to delve into in Israel. Uh, and then David, for a number of years, I relocated back to Australia in 2009. But David, on a number of occasions, has dropped me the hint of the project he wanted to do to research what happened to the Jewish followers of Jesus, not just those associated with CMJ, but actually collectively. And I couldn't take up the hint because I had other research projects I was working on. Um, but then in, I think it must have been March or April 2018, by that stage, all my other research projects had finished, and I then felt it was right to accept David's request, int, and I began to work on that project uh, from that point forward. Uh, it's a big project because 
if you want to find details about the Jewish followers of Jesus, um, it's almost like finding a needle in a haystack because uh, a lot of the mm-hmm. records were destroyed. But there are records out there and it's our job to go and find them. But in order to be able to understand that aspect, first and foremost, you really have to understand the bigger picture, which is the Holocaust itself. And understanding the Holocaust, delving into the Holocaust, is a very, very difficult subject. But there's just no choice. You've got to sort of go to that level first. And it's a very it's a very heavy, heavy subject to, to get into. So... I have been uh, to Europe before, have been to Poland before. In fact, I went on one of David's tours the year before. I went on a tour way back in 2006. And I was actually there in 1978 when I was a young non-Christian traveling around Europe. And even then, I had an interest in the Holocaust ever since I was a very small boy growing Mm. up in in the bush of Western Australia. I actually got an interest in the Holocaust way back then. Um, So back to the subject at hand, the Jewish followers of Jesus. Well, we start with CMJ, Church's Ministry Among Jewish People, because that's an organization that we are familiar with. And so there's records you could go to and then you you get those records. But um, there's a lot of other entities, mission societies, churches. The Roman Catholic Church had a lot of Jewish uh, Christians involved in, in their church as well. But as far as CMJ was concerned, um, we not only went and located where the centre had been, we went there on, that, on our trip and with a big photograph of what it had once looked like, but we had lots of archives. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that in 1939, they had this very, very large Hebrew-speaking congregation of Hebrew Christians at the CMJ Centre. It was called the, the Emmanuel Centre, basically. And um, a large congregation. And the pastor himself was a Jewish follower of Jesus. His name was Jacob Yotch. And Jacob Yotch was part of a, of a whole family. And the parents were both Jewish followers of Jesus, as were his three brothers. As, as far as well, we know that one brother for sure was a follower of Jesus. And we believe the other two were as well. And as it happened, Jacob Yotch happened to be out of Warsaw when the war began. Uh, he wasn't supposed to be. Okay, he'd been to England earlier in the year to speak for the CMJ conference. He'd come back to Poland, but then another another organisation called CMS, Church's Missionary Society, which operated to non-Jewish people within the Anglican Church. They had a guest speaker, and that guest speaker dropped out, and so they needed okay. a guest speaker, and so they requested if Jacob could come back from Poland to England to speak at their conference, I think, in August. So Jacob did. He was married to an English lady and they were going to have their first baby. So she wasn't in London or in England anyway. Um, But he was supposed to be in Poland on the 1st of September. But a few days before, he went to go back to the uh, railway station to get a train back to, to get the ferry, get over to Warsaw. And he was told, sorry, sir, there's no more trains going or no more um, journeys going to the continent. So he was stuck. He had to stay in England. So he survived the Holocaust, whereas his entire family actually had to go through it. Now, after the war, um, the survivors of his family, which especially his mother, managed to get out of Lviv, which was then under Soviet control, basically, managed to get into Germany. And then ultimately, she managed to get to London to be with Jacob. And she was paralyzed because in 1944, um, Basley, Basley Yotch, Jacob's father, who had been hiding in a woodshed for two and a half years, uh, was located wow. by the Gestapo and executed. And Anna, Jacob's mother, um, she was badly beaten and she was paralysed initially for the entire body. And then after three months, she was paralysed from the waist down. So she survived. Now, during that period of time under Nazi occupation, she had to pass herself off as a Gentile Pole, as a Polish Christian, because she spoke Polish very well and didn't, so she said, didn't have discernible Jewish appearance. Hmm. So she survived, but she had to feed um, Jacob, who was hidden in a woodshed, a woodshed belonging to a sympathetic Polish Gentile Christian. And so she survived, but she had to supply the food on the bait. So you can just imagine the pressure, both the Hmm. parents under for two and a half years but then in february 1944 only a few months before the soviets captured Lvov, 
um, somebody reported um, uh, Buzzley to the Gestapo. They came around and they wanted to know if he was Buzzley Yotch. They wanted to know if he was Jewish, basically. So they did a body search. And as you know, when you do a body search on a, on a male, and that's when you know if he's Jewish or not. So they discerned he was Jewish and he was taken away and executed the following day, as far as we can ascertain. Uh, they beat up Anna and she survived, but only just. And so another one of the sons, Pavel or Paul and his wife, Elizabeth, they managed to, together, they got out of uh, Poland afterwards, made their way to Germany. And finally, uh, while Paul remained in Belgium, Paul and Elizabeth, Anna got to London to be with Jacob. So that in itself is a whole story of the escape, let alone the survival. So now Anna is with her elder son, Jacob, who'd gone through the war in London. And um, so he, he took care of her. I mean, even though she might have been there and she might have had the residency, but nevertheless, she wasn't getting a pension. CMJ paid a small pension. But ultimately, Jacob, who was a minister involved with CMJ in London, he was offered a position in all places, Toronto in Canada. Hey, so all right. In 1956, I believe it was, the entire family went over to Toronto. And uh, he was ultimately, he and the mother came too, Anna came as well. And ultimately, um, uh, Jacob was offered a position with Whitcliffe College in Toronto to, to lecture there. And with that came a big house. And so Anna then had her own balcony, uh, own room with a balcony which you can imagine was luxury for somebody who had gone through everything she'd previously gone through. Yeah. Now, about 1957, um, Jacob had applied to the German government for compensation because um, uh, his mother was beaten up by Germans. Okay, There might have been Nazi Gestapo, but still it was they were Germans. And so there was an avenue then to get compensation. So he applied for that. But the German government isn't just going to take a request for compensation and say, yeah, we'll give it to you. They want to know all the details. And so they actually got a legal team, including a researcher onto the case to, to determine if in actual fact, this Anna Yotch had lived there and there and had been beaten up. So they did a lot of research. Now, it just so happens in, um, in Toronto, there are two archives associated with Jacob Yotch. Now, Jacob Yotch became a, an academic and he wrote a lot. He wrote a lot of very good books. And, um, and he had a, a broad archive. And most of it is at Wycliffe College. So in one of my research trips in 2018, it must have been, I went there. I went to um, Toronto and right. uh, stayed with a couple of people and met Philip Yotch, the son of Jacob, the grandson of Anna. Went to Wycliffe College and checked out all their archives. But Philip said, we actually have some stuff in my sister's house. Some of it we actually didn't know until recently existed, and it's all about the family. So I spent half a day with Philip Yotch at the family home, going through all these archives. And right at the very end, Philip comes out to me, and he had a big, thick file. I don't want to do the big fish trip. It must have been about that thick. And he said, this is all in German, something like it's all in German, I don't know what to do with it. I've actually thought about throwing it out. Now, as a researcher, when you hear something like that, the ears go up. <laughs> it might be all in German, but do you know what that file was? That was all the correspondence between the German government and Jacob and his legal team concerning this application for compensation. In that file was the, the, the research, the reports on the researchers, the German okay. researchers who had to be sent out to determine if, in actual fact, all this happened. And they did some pretty thorough work. And so it's all there. So I photographed a lot of those pages, not all, but a lot of those pages. And Deborah Pelegi, David's um, daughter-in-law, is German originally. She later translated yes. it. So here you actually have primary data relating to an actual event which happened. Um, of you know how somebody was actually murdered by the Nazis and all the things that went on and what happened to Anna and, and all the information leading up to it. And so it's there. So when I located that material, I just knew instinctively, this actually is very, very good. Not is it just the information relating to one individual, one couple, one family, 
but it's actually information that relates in a sense you might say to the to the entire because when i came back to australia and actually it was when COVID hit here so the beginning mm. of 2020 uh, i couldn't do any more research trips i had a lot of material to go through i started to go through that material and i thought okay we can actually tell the story of what happened to the jewish christians in europe collectively by looking at what happened to this one family. So it's telling the story of, of the Yotch family and their travails, but it's also it's telling, in a sense, the wider story as well. And so wow. that's how the book came into fruition. Fascinating. Now, um, if if people are listening or people are watching and they want to, you know, try and look into some of Jacob Yotch's material, how is how is it spelled? J-O-C-Z. J-O-C-Z. Now, if you can see this, I'll do some advertising. That is the the book. And so there's all the spelling. That's a picture of the family, and it's available. It's being printed right now in Canada, and CMJ Canada is actually undertaking printing. They're based over in um, the other side, over in B.C., uh, so CMJ uh, Canada is doing the actual uh, printing of the book, right as we speak, basically. Fascinating, fascinating story. And, you know, um, I remember I remember you sharing the story about going to the uh, the grandson's house here in Toronto. Uh, I think you were you were telling myself and the other lady from Canada and uh, that was on the trip. And so I remember that. And I remember thinking, you know, getting into a situation like that and finding all of that material is like, that's like hidden treasure for a researcher. It's, it must have just like totally, totally excited you. And uh, I think it's amazing that you've been able to find this story and, and now are able to tell it. And it is great for people out there to hear, especially Christians out there to hear that, uh, you know, when we hear about the Holocaust, all we, all we think about, not all we think about to, to minimize it, but we think about 6 million Jews and then millions of others, uh, you know, Romas and those with disabilities and homosexuals and so many, so many others that were killed during this horrific time of the Holocaust. But uh, most people don't think about Christians uh, being involved in that. And you're saying that there were as many as tens of thousands of Jewish believers in Jesus. Is that what I caught? Yeah. Yeah. I won't give a specific number, but I can think we can say tens of thousands. Wow. Wow. Fat, phenomenal. They were, they were murdered not because they were followers of Jesus. It's important to realize they weren't murdered because they were, you know, Jewish Christians. They were married because they were Jewish. So right. the whole issue is not one of faith, because the Nazis didn't matter what somebody's faith was. It's mm-hmm. bloodline. It's because they actually had a Jewish connection. Mm-hmm. And and really, that was the 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 diabolically evil part of of the Holocaust was that it was so targeted very specifically against uh, those with those with Jewish DNA with Jewish blood yeah. and um, the the only reason that these hundreds of thousands and millions of, of Jews were killed was because they were Jewish it's the only reason they were a sub race basically because a lot of the Nazi ideology and their worldview their racial worldview was based upon Darwinism and this whole idea of a, a super race, a master race, which was the Aryan race, which was the, the Germans, basically. And there were the others, okay? And the, the others were inferior races. And right at the bottom of the pecking order, of course, were the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And uh, they picked up on a lot of this um, Darwinist-type thinking. You know, ultimately, the master race will win out. And so they just basically more or less were saying, well, we'll just help the process of natural selection. We will just knock out all those sub-races first just to help the process along. And so in that, in that sense, once an ideology is based upon that sort of thinking, then, and if they're in power, well, what chance do the, do the others have in a sense? It's uh, it's really something to uh, to think about, and I think I we chatted a little bit before we 
came live here, and I was uh, just reminiscing a bit about my experience, my first experience in Poland. And when we were there together, you had already been a number of times. But um, I, I, I shared with you, and I, I share with everybody listening, you know, going um, and being a part of a, a tour like this, it was it was a study tour. David Pelegi taught on every site uh, pretty well that we went to, except for the sites that you shared at uh, about, you know, about the project. But um, I found myself just day in and day out, you know, I, I went with great, uh, great expectations. I was going to take all kinds of notes and come back with lots of, you know, lots of thoughts and research recorded down, but I would get back to the hotel at night and I literally was so overwhelmed that I just could not, uh, I couldn't get anything out on paper. I just, it, it was that kind of an experience. And uh, you shared and, and maybe share with those who are listening, but that's not unusual. Oh, no. I mean, I think in a sense, if you didn't have that experience, Jeff, you wouldn't be human. Yeah. Right? If you yeah. didn't have that experience that you just mentioned, because you are faced with the face of evil. The Holocaust is really the face of evil. It's, it's such a reflection of what Jeremiah wrote in 17.9, the heart is evil above all things who can understand it. So the Holocaust, and in a sense, Poland is the epicenter of the Holocaust in a sense. Um, it reflects uh, that scripture and that understanding completely, how evil mankind can be. And there it is. You want to understand how, how bad we can get? We'll just go to Poland and do this research study and not just Auschwitz, okay? Most people will go to Auschwitz. But for me to go to Belzec, to Chelmno, Sobibor, and um, Treblinka, where, you know, basically those camps have sort of been wiped out. I mean, I once in 2006, for instance, I, uh, I was in Warsaw doing some research on another subject matter, and I took a train from Warsaw out to Treblinka. And then I walked, I think, half the way to, to the camp or something, just to get a feel of what it was like for people on the train. And then I spent close to a whole day walking around the forest around Treblinka because there was, there was a work camp there as well as the actual camp. And it was eerie. It was totally and utterly eerie. And um, later I was reflecting to somebody who had been there and done the same thing. And we both realised it was eerie because we never heard any birds. And that, that's right. We never heard really? any it was so quiet. Okay. It's like even, even the birds keep away uh, from the place. And so that's, in a sense, that's a reflection of the, the total evilness of all this. So if you've wow. gone there, you've got this information, and then, you know, we had a meal in the evening. But if you then go back to your hotel room and want to, you know, play up, there's something wrong with you, basically, after having been... Uh, inundated with this evil for a whole day. And then the mm -hmm. worst thing about it, and this is probably what was happening with you, Jeff, because I know it's happening with me, especially when I'm doing this research, I keep on thinking back, well, what if I was there? What would I've done if I was actually there, either as a Jewish person or as a non-Jewish person observing what was happening to the Jewish people? What would I have done? Would I have been like Archbishop Chaptitsky, who hid many Jewish people in Lvov? Would I have been like the, the Roman Catholic Archbishop in the Netherlands, who stood up against the Nazis when they wanted to deport the Jewish people? Would I have been like that Polish Gentile Christian who hid Buzzardy Yotch? Would I have been like that? Would I have been bold and heroic? I don't know. The truth of the matter is, I honestly don't know how I would have actually responded if I had been there. Or many people in Germany, ordinary Germans, whose entire life was actually being dictated to by this regime. How would I have reacted? I don't know. All I can say is I hope I would have done the right thing. But that's what I kept on reflecting upon when I was going reading through this material. Um, because I think when you're actually constantly under this evil regime, etc., etc., I wouldn't be surprised if many people just got paralyzed, mm. paralyzed with fear, just paralyzed, just like I said, paralysis came upon entire societies and peoples. I think that's what's come through from me. I can't judge how people reacted. I don't know how I would have reacted in this one place. Wow. Uh, you know, 
thank you for for raising that because I think first of all for making me completely uncomfortable with those questions because uh, you know I think we all like to think that we would react in a certain way but the reality is um, and, and I've in some of my reading you know you you try not to be too judgmental of those who who sort of went along out of fear. Uh, for their own safety, fear for their families, those kinds of things, and and it does make you wonder what what would I do? That that story about the the hundred and first reserve battalion, uh, these men who were were police officers essentially in their in their hometowns before they were before they were sort of conscripted to be a part of uh, you know of the SS originally. I think just to guard uh, prisoners of war. I think was their was their original task, but those men went on a, a, a gradual journey almost uh, to a point where they were ordered to murder, flat out murder Jewish people. And um, you know, one of, one of the, one of the things I think that, that sort of boggled my mind was so much was, was reading through that story and understanding that there were some of those officers that were so conflicted that they, they asked their commander if they, if they could be excused from this activity. And uh, some of them were actually given permission and they made arrangements for them to, you know, to go home or do a different task or, you know, whatever the case may be. But so many of them just, went along because uh, everybody else was doing it. And gradually, gradually it got easier. And, uh, you know, the, they used the, the, the drink, the alcohol to, to deaden their senses and numb their emotions and numb their feelings so that it wouldn't, it wouldn't seem so bad to them. But, but, but these were human beings who were swept along in a really a diabolical scheme and um, it's almost like before they knew it, they were they were no longer just collaborators. They were they were perpetrators. And um, one of the most one of the most um, there there were two sites that stood out to me. And I was reflecting on this uh, last evening and, and earlier today. Um, but the two places that I think impacted me the most were Belchek and Yosefo. Uh, I. Um, when we went to to Yosefo, I remember uh, we I think we went and we sat in the square there for for quite a long time. We looked at the memorial. We talked about the story of of the Gestapo coming in and and murdering I think 130 Jews right th- right there right there in that square where we were standing. Uh, and then shortly after that, we drove just a couple of kilometers out of town um, and got off the bus by the sign to Yosefo and walked into the woods. Uh, on on this trail, and I, I can, if I close my eyes, I'm there again. It is just so crystal clear. And I took a photo, uh, walking into those woods, and I think I sent it to everybody in the, on the WhatsApp group on the bus afterwards. But it was a photo of the trees, and and on the left hand side of the trail, all of the trees were were light skinned, light barked trees that looked like poplar or. Um, we have birch here in North America, but but they were all light. And on the right-hand side of the trail, they were all pine trees with dark, dark bark. And there was this definitive line down through the woods. But I remember thinking and and um, so much imagery in that in that uh, in that photo because the the line was so distinct. Everything on the left was light. Everything on the on the right was dark, and the trail was in the middle. And I thought, you know. Um, there's just this this sort of powerful illustration here of darkness and light of of evil and good and and then something struck me and i think i as a matter of fact i went back through the whatsapp and the note that i put after i shared the photo was was this sometimes not everything is black and white sometimes not everything is black and white not to take away from the evil that was perpetrated in that place. But um, I believe if I remember the story correctly, and you're a researcher, so you can tell me if I'm, if I'm off on this, but I believe Yosefo was one of the first places where the 101st um, actually began to kill Jews. Is that correct? 
Well, I think you might be right there. I won't say definitively. I think you could be correct there. Yeah. 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 And that that's my recollection, at least. And, you know, I, I so so you think about that, you think about this is the first time that they've been ordered to do something like this. And there's this this gray area of I don't I don't believe this is right. I've been ordered to do this by by my superiors. Uh, what what do I do? What do I yeah. do? Yeah. And, you know, we we listened to David share how they they laid them face down on the ground. And, and they were instructed so that they wouldn't miss to put the bayonet on the, on the, the backbone where the shoulder blade, I think, and, and the collarbone meet and, you know, and to, uh, to shoot and like just mind blowing 1500 uh, Jews who lost their lives in that, in that place. And, uh, you know, we stood, we walked around where the, where the mass graves were, uh, and read the memorial, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was a bit of an apology, uh, even, um, hadn't, hadn't somebody from Germany come and, and place that memorial. Do you remember? Yeah, I think you might be right there as well. Um, yes. From the, oh, the police, the Hamburg yeah. police. Yes, yes. 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 Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal. And so that place really really made an impact on me and um and then uh the other one was Belcheck and with Belcheck it was because of the Canadian connection again. Mm-hmm. Um when I heard the the story of how that only two people uh really escaped to tell the tell the story and one of them Rudolf Reeder um um, a lot of what we know about Belcheck. Actually, I picked up uh, I picked up this book when I was there, and um, his his story, his testimony of what happened at at uh, at Belcheck is in here. But uh, it struck me because Rudolf Reeder ended up in Canada for a time after he uh, after he testified in Germany and and he emigrated here to Canada and I think that's where where historians and researchers kind of lost track of him uh, was somewhere somewhere here in the country of Canada but Hey, we're going to get back to uh, my interview with Calvin Crombie in just a moment, but uh, I wanted to show you just a really brief clip of uh, me standing at Belcheck right at the site and uh, just sharing some of my reflections on the day that I visited there. So here's the clip. This is Belcheck, the extermination camp in the south of Poland. That was the nearly untold story. There were only two people who survived this extermination camp, over half a million Jews were killed here. And uh, the two survivors, one, uh, his first name was Haim, I can't remember his last name. The day that he began his testimony about this place, he was killed. And the other, uh, his name was Rudolf Reeder, and uh, he gave his testimony about Belcheck and was responsible for helping to bring somewhat to uh, justice those who perpetrated here. Uh, Rudolf Reeder, incidentally and interestingly, ended up in Canada. However, no one knows uh, where his life ended. There seems to be uh, a missing record of him after he arrived in Canada, but uh, interesting side note, uh, just another of the horrible places that we're visiting, and this incredibly just horrific history that uh, we are learning about in a much more personal way, walking in these spaces and visiting these places. Um, There really is no words to describe how much more uh, personal, how much more real uh, this becomes than just reading an account, doing research or whatever. Um, It's not a trip I would ask anybody to rush to do, but uh, you know what, it's something that we almost need to do in order to truly enter into this uh, this horrible experience and, and ensure that we never again uh, become a part of a system that uh, so diabolically eliminates a group of people. You know what, since I've been on that trip, I've told a number of people, they've asked me, you know, how was it? And it's, it's really hard to describe a trip like that. I said, well, it was great. You know, we had a lot of fun. Uh, 
and we did have a lot of fun. I met some amazing people who, um, you know, um, a, a few that I'm still connected with uh, today. Uh, Mark and Nadine Huffman, for example, uh, later that year, my wife and I went, I introduced my wife to Mark and Nadine. We spent some time with them in their home in Cincinnati and, and uh, uh, have just kind of clicked. We Mark and I clicked on the bus. We really connected and, and had some fun together, but um, you know, we're, we're corresponding back and forth and, and we consider them friends. Uh, we haven't seen them much lately because of COVID. We, uh, yeah. you know, that, that visit I think happened in the fall of, of 20, 19 and uh we were back down through their way in january uh 2020 but never had a chance to stop but um anyway mark if you're listening i wanted to say hi because i know you uh, you listen to these podcasts and and thank you for uh suggesting that i contact calvin and and get him on here to uh to share but um can i just say something just in case any of you here is don't quite understand you mentioned on the trip you had fun well, I think it's important that people realize that when you do a trip like this, as heavy as it is, as mm. I mentioned earlier, if you, if you go back to your, your room and, and you don't have that heaviness in your head, there's something wrong with you. But on the other hand, um, it's so heavy that you had to have to have a bit of a, a, a breather from it as well. Otherwise, exactly. you're going to be so inundated by it, you can actually go into depression. And mm -hmm. since I've been doing this research project, I've actually gone through a couple of meltdowns, I call them. I just have to you know, take time right out and go do something completely different because it is such yeah. a heavy subject that in sense, you do have to have that bit of normality um, in order to be able to not just be under the, the heaviness of it all. I, I completely so understand. Research, research the project. It's just a little bit of advice you need to be able well, if you go on a trip for instance you need to have that little bit of space that little bit of fun and that was the beauty of the trips as they were they were set up in such a way that um, you can actually have that time out basically yeah because yeah everything is so heavy yeah but that's that's exactly kind of what i was going to get at people would ask me and i would say we we had a good time but then i would tell them this is not this is not a trip to take lightly you know you need to prepare yourself you need to think about about the 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 content and about the information that you're going to hear but but more than that it's it's the it's the experience it's it's walking those roads and and walking the barracks and and looking into those spaces where these horrific things occurred and um i just i have indelibly etched in my in my brain sites like the the thousands and thousands and thousands of shoes and uh you know the hair at auschwitz and um the, just so many things that uh that just take you off guard you know you 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 really um you really enter into the 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 sadness of it all when you're there and um maybe maybe that's been some of your experience too yeah i i've been to auschwitz a couple of occasions the first time i was there in 2006 it really did hit me um, to such a point, we actually had an, uh, an Israeli professor that was there with us at the time, and he took me aside because he, he could tell I was, you know, being impacted by it, and it was very, very good that he did. But I think for me, um, more so than the actual camps, it was probably going to the cemeteries and the forests. Um, yeah, I in my research, I've actually read a book. It's called Death by Bullets, and it's a story about there was possibly two million up to 2 million Jewish people were actually shot in the forests of Belarus and Ukraine. And of course, mm. many were also shot uh, even after Operation or during Operation Reinhardt in Poland itself. So when you consider not all 6 million Jewish people were gassed in Auschwitz and the other camps, Auschwitz is a symbol, okay, okay. because it was left standing basically. Um, but you had all those, you had the other four death camps as well. But you had people who perished in the in the ghettos. You had people who perished in the in the work camps. But yeah, at least two million, I'd say, if you include Poland, were shot in forests and just mm -hmm. buried in mass graves as well. And many of those places yeah. are still out there. So 
There was one particular Catholic priest, for instance, who took upon himself to locate in Ukraine the locations of where a lot of these uh, mass murders took place. And even though I didn't get to Ukraine, I was supposed to be in Ukraine last year, but of course COVID and other things stopped that. But anyhow, but we saw in Poland, which a reflection, because we went to a number of those sites out in the in the forest, did we not? And also in some of the cemeteries, mm. they just had mass graves there. I think that impacted me quite tremendously to realise that, you know, uh, there were places other than the gas chambers where these Jewish people were just taken to the forest and murdered. But the point of the matter with the the ones who were killed in Ukraine from the, the gentleman uh, Dubois is that on so many occasions when he was doing the research, he went to a village and it, it, with a translator and they'd ask a question. They'd go to find old people and they asked the question. And then suddenly a lot of these older people just whoosh, out it came because they'd been bottling this up for generations, they couldn't talk about it. And they knew exactly what happened. They knew exactly where it happened. And so they'd take Dubois and his team out there with a forensic team, and they'd actually go and work out approximately how many Jewish people were murdered and buried in these places. But what they found, so many of these older people knew about the things, and some of them actually told the stories. So the Nazis would go in there and basically get ordinary people to go and uh, dig the trenches because if they didn't what would happen to them mm -hmm. okay so that happened on hundreds right. of locations in ukraine and probably elsewhere so i think that also brought it home to me of what it must have been like for the ordinary citizenry in in poland the ukraine and belarus who actually witnessed all this and some might have actually said good but many people probably said no no this is wrong but what can we do about it ordinary people and that, I think that's what it comes back to. Ordinary people, ordinary men, Battalion 101. What, what did the ordinary people do? What could they do in those situations? And that then brings us back to today, mate. What's happening in our society today? So if a lot of those things that gave rise to the ideology of, of Nazism came from within social Darwinism and other strains of thinking that's out there, mm. those things haven't gone away, have they? they might, no. They're still around today. So who's to say that we won't be confronted even in the West, Western society today with similar things to then? So yeah. challenge is still there for us today. For sure. And uh, one of the things that concerns me uh, as you raise that is, is the rising tide, again, of anti-Semitism in our world. Uh, very, very focused uh, against the Jewish people. And um, I don't know about you know, where you are, but here in Canada, the last two years, uh, we've had the, the most number of anti-Semitic cases on record uh, for for many years uh, in these last couple of years. I know uh, some places in the U.S. are experiencing this as well. Um, and I, I believe other places also. And so uh, I think, uh, and, and I'll get you to share before we wrap up here, you know, I think that that in itself is one of the reasons that we must remember uh, the Holocaust, that we must educate ourselves about the Holocaust so that we, so that we recognize uh, the, the, uh, the subtle things that occurred to, to get it to the place where none of us can even understand, you know, that it got to, uh, but that so in, in our world today, we can, stand with the Jewish people and the millions of others who lost their lives and remember so that, so that it should never happen again. Mm -hmm. Just share a little bit about your thoughts. I know you've researched the Holocaust, but I know that, you know, we understand it for a purpose. Well, when you talk about researching the Holocaust, I need to make it clear. I'm doing a fairly small area. The number of Jewish Christians, of course, is quite small in the bigger context, but there might be actually more than what normal people would think, um, mm. the number of Jewish Christians. Uh, secondly, the researching the Holocaust is such a broad, broad thing. We can understand some of the mechanics in a sense of how it happened, but as David Plaggy often reminds me, it's the why that is the big question mark, and it's, it's a bottomless pit on that one. But I think for me, where I've got to at the moment, and I had to go through lots of data, I come back from my research trips with literally thousands of 
uh, photographs. I photograph everything, which I then have to process. There's a lot of data. But I think where I'm getting to now more so as I process the data is um, what was behind it. What is the ideology? What motivated that ideology? Where do those ideas come from? There's a very close friend of mine over here called Peter Obetz, who's originally from Germany and had relatives from both sides there. As he often always says, ideas have consequences. And mm. I think that's where I'm getting to at the moment. There will be consequences from the ideas. So what are those ideas and where are they out in society today? Yes, you talk about the anti-Semitism that's in Canada and in other parts of the Western world. Um, but it's an ideology that's out there today that's not just opposed to the Jewish people. In my opinion, it's opposed to anything that actually believes in a sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth. Okay, mm. That's the ideology that's out there. And it's targeting Jewish people because God has entered into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. But you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are also in a covenant relationship with God Almighty through the new covenant, a blood covenant relationship. Okay, And so if there's ideologies out there, ideas out there that are opposed to the whole concept of the existence of an almighty creator God, then assure you and I and what we stand for will also be um, in, in the firing line, so to speak. So it's, it's, it's more in a sense than just looking at the consequences uh, for the Jewish people, it's mm -hmm. also much broader than that. It comes back to the church and what the church stands for, the true church. And we see this actually in Germany in the period 33 to 39, the ideological struggle between the confessing church and the, the Reich church, between those who actually were more uh, willing to take on the Nazi worldview and those who wanted to hold on to the, the biblical worldview. So we actually have, in a sense, a... Um, a microscope, a microcosm, you might say, in Germany of, the, of this macro situation, just by looking at the struggle that was taking place within the German church between 39, 33 and 39. That, I think, is a picture of where we're at today in the church mm. and society. Wow, very, very interesting. And uh, Calvin, thank you for sharing with us today for being a part of the podcast. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking of a, a great book that I read um, that Eric Metaxas wrote about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, if you want to get some perspective, if you're listening or watching, you want to get some perspective about uh, the struggle that the true church was having in those days. Uh, Bonhoeffer's story is just absolutely amazing. Um, Calvin, just be before we sign off today, um, hold your book up again. We'll make sure that we let people know where they can get this. And uh, the title is? Basili and Anna Yotch, Jewish Christian Victims of the Holocaust. Okay. And uh, CMJ Canada is going to have that available. If they don't have it already, they're going to have it very soon. And uh, if you want want to read, if this interests you, uh, about Jewish Christians who uh, were involved in, in the Holocaust, then uh, make sure that you pick that up. And um, don't forget, there's a Canadian connection in the story. So if you're if you're listening from Canada here, uh, you might be you might be interested in that. Uh, Calvin, again, thank you. Uh, it has been a pleasure to uh, to have met you a couple of years back and and to be able to spend some time together today. I hope that our paths will cross again. And um, we uh, of course have a, a mutual friend now in uh, in David Pelegi. You much longer than than I, but uh, David and Carol are wonderful people. And you mentioned uh, Deborah, their daughter in law, who translated a lot of that research for you. I saw that they just had a little boy uh, right. yesterday or today, just recently. So, Gabrielle Amos. Gabrielle Amos. That's right. That's right. So shout out to, uh, to Benno and uh, Deborah as well. But uh, God bless you. And um, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jeff. Well, thank you for joining us for the podcast today. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Calvin Crombie. Uh, Calvin brings a very unique perspective to the Holocaust when he talks about his research of the Jewish 
Christian victims of the Holocaust. We don't often think in those terms, but uh, these were Jewish followers of Jesus who got swept up in the, uh, the extermination of the Jews. And this one story, I think, is one that maybe will intrigue you. And I want to remind you about the book. Uh, we have the information here. And if you're just listening today, the book is entitled Basili and Anna Yoch, Christian Jewish Victims of the Holocaust. And uh, it will be available at CMJ Canada. And uh, if you would like to email them, you can email cmjcanada7 at gmail.com. That is CMJ Canada, all lowercase, the numeral seven at gmail.com and you can uh, write and ask them about when that will be available. I don't believe it's available just yet, but uh, that is a book that you're going to want to pick up. Again, Basili and Anna Yoch, Jewish Christian Victims of the Holocaust, and uh, you need to check that out. Also, we reflected today about uh, the trip that Calvin and I were both on together in Poland. It was called the Narrow Bridge Tour, hosted by Reverend David Pelegi from Christ Church in Jerusalem. And I would not hesitate to encourage you to be involved in one of David's tours. As a matter of fact, if this is something that you're interested in, they are currently planning a tour in July 2021. And you can find out more information about that uh, on their website, narrowbridgetour.com narrowbridgetour.com and all the information is there. I'm sure that if there are any changes to the itinerary schedule or dates of the trip, you can get all of that information there on the site. We're all looking forward to travel just as soon as we can. And so if that's something that interests you, I would thoroughly, thoroughly recommend uh, David's tour. Well, thank you again for listening. Don't forget, we are a ministry. We're a charitable organization. And when we uh, do this, we're doing it so that we can uh, turn people's attention towards Israel and towards the Jewish people and the needs there. We support about 70 ministries in the land of Israel. And so if you enjoy this podcast, if you watch any of our other content online, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, and would like to show your appreciation, we would love for you to send a donation. Uh, firstcenturyfoundations.com forward slash donate is the website and uh, you can choose whether you're donating from Canada or the U.S. Your gifts are uh, receivable and uh, for tax purposes and so we encourage you to, uh, to check that out. Thanks so much for being with us today. God bless you and remember, as Christians, we stand with Israel. Israel.